Republic. Written and narrated by Christopher Vale. Theme song Lionheart by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 6. The Whistling of Bullets By the middle of the 18th century, the American colonies were thriving. There were nearly 1.2 million people residing in the 13 colonies in 1750, up from only half a million 25 years earlier. Unlike in Europe, most of the colonists owned land, and poverty was very rare. The middle class was quite large and the gap between the middle class and upper class was extremely small compared to that in European countries. With such a quickly growing population, coupled with a vast and unsettled continent, land speculation became big business in this time, and many young men hoped to make their fortune in it. It was this desire for land that, in 1753, prompted Robert Dinwiddie, then governor of Virginia, to send a daring 21-year-old named George Washington, on a perilous mission into the American wilderness. Washington, who held the rank of major in the Virginia militia, was ordered by Dinwiddie to carry a letter to the commander of the French forces in what was then known as the Ohio Country. George Washington was born to his father Augustine's second wife, Mary Ball Washington, in 1732. Washington had two older half-brothers who had received formal educations, and when their father died in 1743, they received nice inheritances. For George, the death of his father meant he had to stop his formal education at age 11 for lack of money. He did inherit the modest farm where he and his mother lived across the river from Fredericksburg, Virginia, but it was nothing compared to the splendor of the place his older brother Lawrence had inherited at Mount Vernon, some 35 miles away. Lawrence Washington was 14 years older than George and had been formally educated in England. When George was just seven, Lawrence joined the colonial army and fought alongside British regulars against the Spanish in South America and the Caribbean during the war for Jenkins' ear. The American colonists were slaughtered in the war, but Lawrence fortunately survived. When he returned to Virginia, he was hailed a great hero and appointed adjutant general of the colony. Soon after, he was elected to the prestigious House of Burgesses. In 1743, Lawrence married Anne Fairfax, joining one of the most prominent families in Northern Virginia. Lawrence and his wife resided in the home he had inherited from his father at Mount Vernon, overlooking the Potomac River, and at Belvoir, 
an elegant and opulent estate owned by the Fairfax family. George was always welcome at his brother's home and visited whenever his mother would allow. George was always impressed by the high society he encountered when visiting his brother. He rubbed elbows with influential visitors and spoke with gentlemen of great learning. George wanted to become just as prestigious as those men, and so, without money for formal schooling, put himself through a strict regimen of self-study. Staying with Lawrence and watching everything taught him how to navigate through the Virginia aristocracy. However, to become the great and influential man that he wanted to be, Washington needed more upward mobility than he currently possessed. Lawrence had moved upward due to the heroic status he received serving in the military, which enabled him to marry into a wealthy family. With it being peacetime, that avenue was currently closed to George. Instead, George turned to land surveying, a career in which many young and ambitious men were turning to make their fortunes. When he was 15, George began to study books about surveying, and no doubt received some tutoring from the Fairfax family surveyors. The next year, he joined a team of surveyors hired by the Fairfaxes to survey the dark wilderness along the south branch of the Potomac River. A year later, at the age of 17, he was appointed surveyor for Culpeper County. Land surveying was hard work, pushing through dense forests, muddy swamps, and rocky hills. It could be lucrative, though. Like most surveyors, George was paid in land, and by the time he turned 20, he had amassed 2,500 acres. A tall and strong man with piercing blue-gray eyes, George stood 6 feet 3 inches tall at a time when the median height for an American male was 5 feet 5 inches. He was a rugged yet sophisticated young man of high ambition. Polite, charming, and thoughtful, he was very well liked by the well-bred of the Virginia upper class. In 1752, George was heartbroken when his brother Lawrence died of tuberculosis at just 34 years of age. Lawrence had no children, and while his widow Anne inherited Mount Vernon, he left George some land in Fredericksburg in his will. George asked the governor to name him to his brother's post as adjutant general. The governor declined, but did award him the rank of major and place him in command of the southern district. Washington taught himself and his recruits how to soldier. It was tedious and boring work in the uncomfortable weather of the steamy low country and did not appear to offer much hope for the adventure or military acclaim he sought. At least, not until Governor Dinwiddie asked him to serve as the colony's envoy to the French forces in the Ohio country. Washington took six men with him into the wilderness, including a translator, Indian traders, and a gunsmith. They crossed parts of Maryland and Pennsylvania, and three weeks after leaving Alexandria, Virginia, finally reached the forks of the Ohio River. They still had 150 miles to go to reach the French fort. Washington met with an Indian chief referred to by the English as the Half-King, an extremely influential man among the various tribes. The Half-King and several Indians accompanied the Virginians up the river to the French fort, where Washington could meet with the French commander. It took several days, trekking through rain, mud, 
and thick forests before they finally arrived at the fort. Washington delivered the letter from the governor, demanding that the French cease pushing into the British domains. This was the opening verbal shot in what would become known as the French and Indian War in America and the Seven Years' War in Europe. While at the fort, Washington and his men were treated very well by the French. He was allowed to roam the fort freely and made mental notes of the French numbers and defenses. Finally, the French commander prepared a reply to Governor Dinwiddie and presented it to Washington. The young major thanked him for his hospitality, and then he and his men left the fort. Washington was eager to return to Williamsburg as quickly as possible with the French response. He decided to split his small band into two groups, with himself and a frontiersman named Christopher Gist traveling as quickly as possible while the rest would follow behind. While traversing the dense frontier, Washington and Gist fell in with a group of French Indians who had apparently been waiting for them. One of the Indians was walking about 15 steps ahead when he suddenly spun and fired at the two Englishmen. By the grace of God, he missed, and Washington and Gist leapt upon him and captured him. They held him as their prisoner for the rest of the day, but released him later that night. Washington was hoping to find the Allegheny River frozen to enable them to cross over. Unfortunately, the ice had broken and it was driving. The only way across would be to build a log raft, which took Washington and Gist the entire day to construct using their single hatchet. When the two men were about halfway across the river, Washington's setting pole was jerked by water and ice, and the Major was pulled into the icy river. Washington managed to save himself by grabbing hold of one of the logs from the raft. Gist acted quickly and pulled Washington out before he drowned. Gist dragged the young Major onto the banks of the river and built a fire so that Washington would not die from hypothermia. Once Washington was feeling better, they set out again and finally reached Williamsburg in early 1754. Washington had been gone 77 days. He wasted no time delivering the message from the French to Governor Dinwiddie, stating that the French did not feel obliged to obey the British demands to vacate the Ohio country. Dinwiddie was concerned by the young major's reports of French forces and their fortifications. When Dinwiddie asked Washington's thoughts on French plans, Washington responded that in his view, it was their absolute design to take possession of the Ohio. Dinwiddie thanked Washington and asked that he write up his experiences. Washington did so and returned it to the governor in 24 hours. Dinwiddie had it published and it was picked up by papers all across the colonies and even back in London, making Washington a famous man. Dinwiddie realized that he needed to act quickly to establish a fort at the Forks of the Ohio before the French did. He pressed the House of Burgesses to fund a volunteer army of 300 men called the Virginia Regiment. Their pay would be in land acquired during the war. Dinwiddie wanted to place Washington in command of the army, but the young officer declined, demonstrating a humility that would arise again and again throughout his amazing career. Instead, Washington requested a promotion to lieutenant colonel and to be allowed to serve as second in command. He insisted that his only desire and ambition was to serve his country. Dinwiddie agreed and appointed Colonel Joshua Fry to head the army, placing now Lieutenant Colonel Washington as second in command. 
Colonel Fry remained in Virginia to recruit and sent Washington with the forces they'd already recruited ahead into the wilderness with some 186 men. Washington expected Fry to join him with the rest of the army and artillery shortly. Washington soon learned that the French had beat them to the forest, sending a force of a thousand men to construct Fort Duquesne there. Realizing that they were hopelessly outnumbered, even once Fry joined him with the rest of the regiment, but not wanting to retreat, Washington met with the half-king and encouraged him to join the Virginians. Washington also wrote to the governors of Maryland and Pennsylvania, informing them that the French were building a fort at the Forks and hoping that they would send men to reinforce his troops. Soon, the Virginians received word from the half-king Seneca tribe that a French force was marching toward them. The number and purpose was unknown. Washington wisely presumed the number to be greater than his own and set his troops entrenching in the Great Meadows. While the Virginians were digging in, Christopher Gist, the frontiersman who had saved Washington from drowning in the Allegheny River, arrived at camp. He met with Washington and assured the young commander that the French force was no larger than 50 men. Washington still did not know the purpose of the force marching toward him, nor did he know if it was the entire force or just an advanced guard. Nevertheless, Washington decided to divide his army in two. He would lead 90 men toward the French, while the rest remained to finish the defensive preparations. This was a risky strategy, for if the 50-man force was simply an advance guard, leading a much larger army, the French might pick off each half of Washington's army one at a time. This would not be the last time he took such a risk. Washington went to the Seneca camp to meet with the half-king in an attempt to convince him to join the British side in what Washington knew would soon become a hot war with France. He told the Indians that the French wanted to kill the half-king, and that had its desired effect. The half-king agreed to join Washington in attacking the French force. The two men slipped through the dense forest until they found the French soldiers waking up and making breakfast without even posting centuries. Washington went back to his army and decided to surround the French so that he and his Indian allies could attack them on all sides. Like many engagements, no one is certain who fired first. It might have been the inexperienced Virginians under an equally inexperienced commander, or it might have been the French, startled by the sudden appearance of so many English and Indians surrounding the camp as they ate breakfast. Either way, what ensued was a massacre. The French commander, de Jomonvilliers, was wounded during the fighting, but continued to shout at Washington as he bled. Washington approached the wounded commander, desperately trying to hear the translation of his words over the noise of the battle. Jomonvilliers was telling Washington that he and his men were on a diplomatic mission to the English, much like the one Washington had originally led to the French. The half-king, who was fluent in French, understood what had happened before Washington did and immediately swung his hatchet, splitting the Frenchman's skull. The half-king then pulled out the man's brains and squished the blood and tissue in his hands. This whipped the other Indians into a frenzy, and they rushed into the camp, savagely scalping and killing the French. Washington was in shock and helpless to stop the horror before him. Washington omitted the massacre while riding home. Instead, he simply wrote that he heard bullets whistle, and believe me, there is something charming in the sound. This boastful statement was picked up by the local press 
and even the papers in London, where it reached King George II himself. The king dismissed Washington's bragging claims that he would not say so if he had been used to hear many. Some French troops had escaped the battle and ran as quickly as they could back to the main French force. Washington knew that it would not take long before the French heard of the massacre and they would come seeking revenge. He was correct. In fact, the main French force was commanded by none other than Louis Coulion de Villiers, the brother of de Jamonvilliers, whose brains the half-king had squeezed through his fingers. Washington and his men quickly fell back to the Great Meadows and the newly constructed fort there that was aptly named Fort Necessity. The half-king and his Seneca warriors had no desire for fort warfare and quickly abandoned the Virginians to their fate. Fortunately, the reinforcements from Virginia arrived, but they were still heavily outgunned. Moreover, Colonel Fry had died on the way, having fallen from his horse and leaving the command to the young and inexperienced George Washington. Fort Necessity was terribly positioned, with hills all around it. The French surrounded the fort, positioning men up on the hills, and they easily fired into the fort from the elevated positions. It was a slaughter. Thirty were killed, and many more wounded. The killing would have probably continued, but Providence brought a downpour of rain. De Villiers offered to allow Washington to surrender and march his men safely back to Virginia if he agreed to sign a statement confessing to the murder of de Villiers' brother. Washington agreed and signed the document, though he later complained that he did not know what he was signing. He did not read French and relied on his translator, a Dutchman, whom Washington claimed did not speak sufficient English to relay the purpose of the confession adequately. Washington and the ragged remains of his regiment returned to Virginia, broken and beaten. Dinwiddie was furious with Washington, but to his credit, did not chastise the young officer in public. The London papers, however, were not as magnanimous. They skewered him. Washington resigned from the regiment instead of being forced to take a reduction in rank. He worried that his military career would end without him ever having achieved the military glory his brother Lawrence had. Meanwhile, two more expeditions were sent into the western wilds, but neither ever went anywhere. The British government began to fear that the colonies might unite, grow too military, and trust in themselves for their own defense. Thus, the British crown finally sent regular forces, comprising two infantry regiments and artillery under the experienced command of General Edward Braddock. Washington realized this was his chance to get back into military service. General Braddock was organizing his army in Annapolis, Maryland, and the Pennsylvania Assembly, eager to learn something about the man London had charged with their salvation, dispatched Benjamin Franklin to meet with him. Franklin introduced himself under his role as postmaster instead of that of assemblyman, explaining his desire to help with the army's communications in any way he could. Braddock arrogantly dismissed Franklin's concerns of a frontier war, a war Franklin did not think the British army was especially prepared to successfully wage. Braddock was convinced that it would take him no more than a few days to take Fort Duquesne, and from there he would march north and conquer Niagara. When Franklin pointed out how well the Indians fought in that type of terrain, Braddock chuckled. These savages may indeed be a formidable enemy to your raw American militia, he said dismissively, but upon the king's regular and disciplined troops, sir, it is impossible that they should make any impression. 
Franklin realized that it would be improper to argue about military affairs with a general, and thus said no more about his concerns. Braddock was disheartened by what he saw as a lack of enthusiasm from the Americans for the war. He and his men had come to fight for them, after all, but they were not willing to make any sacrifices themselves. In fact, Braddock believed that they were profiting handsomely off the war. He confided to a friend that he believed the Americans were overcharging them for wagons and goods, while at the same time refusing to fight the war themselves. Franklin agreed on that point. He was quite annoyed with his own colony's lack of support for the war being waged on the frontier. The Quakers were constantly blocking military appropriations. However, he did believe that the people of Pennsylvania as a whole supported the army and their efforts. He confidently informed Braddock that Pennsylvanians, unlike Marylanders, would be happy to hire out their wagons and horses to the king's army. Very pleased to hear that, Braddock assigned Franklin with the job of procuring the wagons. Franklin agreed and quickly went to work, advertising for the use of 150 wagons and 1,500 horses. Franklin was able to secure the necessary wagons and horses, but had to put down his own money to do so, to be repaid later by the army. Considering how slowly the crown was about paying its debts, Franklin was not exactly happy to do this. Meanwhile, George Washington also received an audience with General Braddock and requested a commission in the British Army. Braddock was only able to grant a commission as high as the rank of captain, which would have meant a demotion for Washington, and so he declined. Braddock was eager to have Washington join him, however, since the young man was experienced with the area in which they were fighting and already had contact with the local tribes. Thus, Braddock offered Washington the position as an unranked volunteer who would serve as an aide-de-camp to the general. Washington accepted the position. The 1,500-man British force moved out to engage the French, while Franklin returned to Philadelphia. Franklin encountered optimistic citizens, but he could not share in their optimism. He still believed that Braddock did not realize how different this frontier was from the battles the British were accustomed to fighting. The British Army and Virginia militia pushed toward Fort Duquesne along the road the Virginia Regiment had cut earlier, with Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gage leading the way with a force of 450 men. Just a few miles south of the French fort was a meadow which Gage marched toward. Unfortunately, he had failed to send enough scouts out in front of his main body. Meanwhile, a French force and their Indian allies were moving south from Duquesne. The two forces suddenly came upon each other in the forest, and for a moment, both were too surprised to make a move. When the shock finally wore off, the French and Indians opened fire. Not knowing the strength of the enemy, and fearing he might be badly outnumbered, Gage immediately ordered a retreat. Braddock, who was further back in the lines along with George Washington, heard the sounds of battle from up ahead and ordered his men advance. Braddock's advancing troops collided with Gage's retreating forces along the narrow road and chaos ensued. Knowing the terrain and understanding frontier warfare better than the British, the French commander outmaneuvered his opponents by splitting his army in two files, which moved quickly to either side of the road, trapping the British between them in the middle. The French then opened fire on the British from cover of the forest. I cannot describe the horrors of that scene, one survivor said. The yell of the Indians is fresh on my ear, and the terrific sound will haunt me till the hour of my disillusion. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize 
that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E, at Amazon.com or on my website at ChristopherVale.net. I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War, but I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again, and now, back to Home of the Brave. Most of the British officers were killed or wounded as their men fled the battle in terrified retreat. Washington, however, did not flee. Instead, he charged into the battle and in the process had two horses shot out from under him. Yet he survived unscathed. Braddock was not so lucky. He fought every bit as valiantly as Washington, perhaps even more so, having four horses shot out from under him. However, the British general was mortally wounded and Washington carried him from the field of battle before the old man died. Washington and the Virginians stood their ground and fought while most of the British regulars retreated. His hat and coat were riddled with bullet holes, but he refused to back down, demonstrating an unusual courage in battle. Two-thirds of the British force were killed or wounded, including three-fourths of its officers. Many others were captured. That night, Washington and the British soldiers had to listen to the screams of their captured comrades as the Indians allied with the French tortured them to death. About a dozen of these prisoners were stripped naked, their faces blackened, their hands tied behind their backs. The Indians took them to the bank of the Allegheny River, opposite the fort, and tied them to stakes. The Indians then burned them to death with red-hot irons. Washington and the Virginia militia returned to Virginia, while the British regulars fled to Philadelphia. Tales of Washington's bravery in battle soon swept through the colonies and even across the Atlantic to England. He was quickly forgiven his earlier embarrassing loss to the French. After all, if an experienced general such as Braddock, commanding 1,500 British regulars, could be so soundly defeated, how could a young and inexperienced colonial officer like Washington be expected to do any better in his very first command? Despite the defeat, Washington became the hero of the hour, with the Earl of Halifax remarking that the young man behaved as bravely as if he really loved the whistling of bullets. Dinwiddie rewarded Washington with the rank of colonel and began refashioning the Virginia regiment into a force of 1,200 men, divided into 16 companies. Washington did not remain in Williamsburg to lobby for the command of the regiment, though he obviously wanted it. Instead, he returned to Mount Vernon, which was being rented from Lawrence's widow. He would eventually inherit the property in 1761, when Anne passed. Washington did not want to merely be offered the command of the regiment. He wanted it pressed upon him, by the general voice of his fellow Virginians. He would take a similar stance regarding the office of president many years later. Washington did eventually receive and accept the command at only 24 years of age. Meanwhile, the war was going terribly. The English were fighting a bush war against native warriors who knew the terrain and understood that type of irregular warfare. The Indians were cunning, crafty, 
stealthy, brave, and brutal. The Virginians were fighting a defensive war, and the Indians had no trouble picking them apart little by little. Washington realized that their only hope was to go on the offensive, but the civilian leadership refused to allow it. Washington was convinced that if they could take Fort Duquesne and drive the French army from the Ohio country, the Indians would have no choice but to come to favorable terms with the British. Unfortunately, London had not deployed another army to the colonies since the utter massacre of their last force under General Braddock. Furthermore, Governor Dinwiddie rightly feared that the colonial forces had little hope of taking Duquesne alone. After all, the last two offensive actions had led to disaster, and he preferred to allow the Parliament and Crown to take the lead. Besides, to Dinwiddie's and Washington's great frustration, neither Maryland nor Pennsylvania had done much to help. In Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin was just as frustrated with the inaction of the Pennsylvania colony as Washington and Dinwiddie. The problem was not that the people, or even the assembly, did not want to support the war effort and defend the frontier. After all, Braddock's defeat had shocked Pennsylvanians and brought the war a lot closer to home. The remnants of the British forces had fled through the colony, terrified of an enemy they could neither see nor number. The new commander was so panicked that he burned his baggage train and fled with his men to Philadelphia as quickly as they could move, leaving the entire frontier defenseless. After the British regulars abandoned them, shocking reports of terror on the frontier regularly reached Philadelphia. In Penn's Creek, Indians attacked a small English village, massacring 14 and kidnapping 11 others. The community of Great Coves was burned to the ground by Chief Shingus the Terrible, as the English called him. Reports claimed that husbands and fathers were forced to watch as the Indians chopped off the heads of their wives and drank the blood of their children. What terrified the colonists the most, however, was how their Indian allies had turned against them so quickly and easily. Franklin's friend, John Bartram, explained to him what many frontier families were feeling and that several of the cruelest Indians were, as he put it, almost daily familiar at their houses, ate, drank, and swore together, was even intimate playmates, and now, without any provocation, destroyeth all before them with fire, ball, and tomahawk. There was apparently no escaping the savagery of these warriors. Even guarding and securing the house could not save the English settlers. As Bartram explained to Franklin, if the house was well manned and secure, the Indians would simply fire red-hot slugs onto the roof, burning it down onto the family's heads. Any white person that fled from the house would be shot. The Indians intentionally sought out houses full of women and children, where they would break in, kill everyone inside, plunder the house, and then burn it down around the dead bodies. The terror was not limited to the far-flung frontiers either. The Indian raids soon began to push forward over the Allegheny Mountains and across the Susquehanna River. The people demanded that the government do something, and Benjamin Franklin and the rest of the assembly agreed. They had authorized 50,000 pounds for defense of the colony soon after receiving word of Braddock's defeat. The problem, however, arose over how they were going to raise it. The assembly had approved a property tax throughout the colony to raise the funds. Unfortunately, the proprietors, the Penn family, did not believe the assembly had authority to tax their property. Thus, the colonial governor, Robert Morris, 
a man completely loyal to the proprietors, vetoed the bill. Franklin, like most of his fellow assemblymen, was outraged. He privately called Morris the rashest and most indiscreet governor that I have ever known, and publicly pondered why the governor would make himself the hateful instrument of reducing a free people to the abject state of vassalage. Franklin knew that the assembly and the people would eventually force Morris and the proprietors to relent, but prayed Pennsylvania could hold out long enough. We are in flames, he told a friend. Finally, at the end of 1755, under enormous pressure, the proprietors agreed to gift 5,000 pounds for the defense of the colony, but made it abundantly clear that this was in no way a payment of any tax. Word of this reached Philadelphia about the same time that hundreds of German colonists arrived, demanding that they be protected by the colonial government and bringing news of a new Indian massacre where even the children were scalped alive. Thus, Franklin and the assembly decided that they would not relinquish their claims of authority to tax even the proprietor's property, especially for the defense of the colony. They accepted the gift, but pushed ahead with taxes. The money was enough to pass a bill to form a militia, and Franklin soon set out to organize one, even donning a military uniform himself. After yet another horrific attack, this time only 50 miles north of Philadelphia, the assembly and governor finally put away their differences. Franklin and 50 militiamen were dispatched to the northwest frontier to organize a defense. Franklin's son, William, a soldier in the King's Grenadiers, accompanied them. They were hoping that the simple act of showing up would be enough to rally the inhabitants to organize for their own defense and the defense of the colony. Franklin was encouraged when they arrived at the small village of Bethlehem and found it in so good a posture of defense, defended by a stockade. Franklin and the others set about to organize the defense of the area, with much of that effort going to bolster the courage of the inhabitants who lived in nightly horror that they would be the next to be scalped or burned alive. Franklin decided to build a blockhouse, hoping that it would bolster the courage of the villagers. In early 1756, Franklin led a march across the Blue Mountains through horrible winter weather with near-freezing conditions and a heavy rain which soaked the men and threatened to wet their gunpowder. When they finally reached the small village of Janaden Hutton, they found that they were too late. All round appears nothing but one continued scene of horror and destruction, wrote one of Franklin's men. The houses were burnt and the villagers had been butchered in the most shocking manner, their mangled bodies exposed to the birds and beasts of prey. After Franklin and his men buried the dead, they began construction of a fort. They then built two more forts along the frontier. These forts would serve as a refuge for settlers during the horrors of a war that was not nearly over. Moreover, the forts were a demonstration to the French that the English would not be driven into the sea, and to the Indians that they would have to accommodate themselves to the English because they were not going anywhere. In other words, these forts were not simply defensive outposts, but a statement of imperial purpose. Though he never fought a single battle, Franklin was held as the hero of the hour, and when he returned to Philadelphia, was elected colonel of the Philadelphia Regiment. A formal declaration of war was finally issued from England, and Lord Loudon, the king's newly appointed commander-in-chief of British forces in the colonies, arrived in Philadelphia in the summer of 1756. Franklin met with him on multiple occasions, and the British general found his counsel quite helpful. Franklin was equally pleased with the new commander-in-chief. 
George Washington also hoped to meet with the new commander. He had written to him, suggesting plans for marching to and taking Fort Duquesne. Washington held the rank of colonel in the Virginia militia, but all regular British officers, regardless of rank, were superior in command to all militia officers. Thus, Washington desperately wanted to be commissioned a colonel in the British Army. In March of 1757, Washington traveled to Philadelphia to meet with the general. Two weeks went by as Washington waited. Finally, he was allowed to see the general. Loudon, however, did not even permit the young American colonel to speak. Instead, he treated Washington like one would treat a lowly servant. He never discussed Washington's plans to take Fort Duquesne, and he certainly did not bring up a royal commission. When Loudon was finished speaking, he simply turned his back on Washington, indicating to the young militia officer that the meeting was over. Fortunately for Washington, Loudon did not last long. By summer, William Pitt had become prime minister, and he recalled the general to London. Pitt was ready to bring the war to an end, and sent a massive force to the colonies for a three-pronged attack. Two armies were to advance into Canada, and the third was to take control of the Ohio country. In other words, it was to expel the French from Fort Duquesne. Brigadier General John Forbes was assigned the task of forcing the French from Ohio. He had 1,700 British regulars and 5,000 colonials under his command. The Virginia Regiment made up 40% of the colonial forces. Washington and his men were assigned the job of constructing a road between Forts Frederick and Cumberland. Washington became violently ill while doing so and returned to Virginia to recover. Once he was feeling better, he called upon the widow Martha Custis, and in January 1758, they became engaged after an extremely short courtship of less than 24 hours. Washington soon returned to his army constructing the road. Washington bemoaned the work as there was no glory in constructing roads and was excited to receive orders to join Forbes' army for the advance on the French in late summer of 1758. That fall, Forbes marched his army north to Fort Duquesne. On November 25th, 1758, they arrived to find the fort abandoned. The French had fled the Ohio country. Washington left the army a week later to return to his home and marry Martha on January 6, 1759. Later that year, the British army captured Fort Ticonderoga and Fort Niagara and defeated the French in Quebec. The British Navy was able to prevent French ships from resupplying and reinforcing Montreal as three British armies closed in on the city. Montreal surrendered in September of 1760, giving the British control of Canada. The war in North America was over, but the French and British continued the fight elsewhere, dragging other nations in as well, in what became known in Europe as the Seven Years' War. The consequences of the war would alter the relations of England and her American colonies forever. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com.